the book. How we got it and how to get the most out of it. This is part 13. And the title tonight is Preparing Your Heart for God's Healing Correction. Preparing Your Heart for God's Healing Correction. The text we've been looking at is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You have that in your notes? Let's read it all out loud together, okay? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. If you go right back to when we started in 2 Timothy, the first six or so messages in this series, we were looking at how we got our Bibles. Um, why we have the books that we have, why, don't, why we don't include other books like the apocryphal books, why we think we have the right number of books, why the Bible you carry is the, the Old Testament. Those are the books that Jesus used. We spent quite a bit of time working our way through that. The nature of inspiration. This is a verbally inspired, inerrant revelation. And anyone who says different is wrong. And there are some pretty prominent voices saying different today. Um, no, I won't. But anyway, there are. So that's where we were, how we got the book, the book that we have, the nature of the book. And then, how to get the most out of it. That's when we turned our attention specifically to these verses and a couple preceding it. And when we got into 2 Timothy, the big picture is, I said there are two effective tools used by the Holy Spirit to shape godliness in our lives. First was the power of a good example. The text we looked at was 2 Timothy 3.10, where Paul speaks to Timothy and says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And we took several weeks talking about the power of a good example. Because it's not enough just to see truth on paper. We are all more influenced when we see the beauty of truth being fleshed out in a person's life. There's a winsomeness to it. It, it draws us in a way that's not just academic. Every serious Christian... Every serious Christian must abandon superficial influences... ...if he's going to follow Jesus closely. And our world is filled with superficial influences. From celebrities to sports heroes to actors and actresses. The call to be shaped by good examples rather than empty ones. It has to be personally applied by every follower of Christ. It means... It means taking a long look into your heart and naming the influences of your life. It means naming the things that drain and pollute. And in our culture, 
That will mean predominantly looking at relationships, giving careful attention to relationships. It means being willing to pay the price of forsaking those who would draw our hearts from the Lord. It means being particular and it means being honest in assessing uh, television and movies and the internet and music. I had a guy who uh, I spoke with not all that long ago who studies film and in a university setting and he was talking about a certain movie and asked me if I thought it was a good movie. I hadn't seen it. And from a technical side, he was telling me it's a very good movie. And what I tried to, tried to say back was, see, for me, that's a loaded question. When, when you ask me, is such and such a movie a good movie? And I think, I think we all need to think this through. When you ask me or someone asks you, is such and such a good movie, you need to answer in two ways. In one sense, I'm probably not qualified to answer. Yes, it's a good movie. Um, The cinematography is well done. The director is a famous director of good reputation. Yes, the the, uh, storyline, the plot, it's well filmed. uh, It's well edited. The costuming is great. So in that sense... Is it a good movie? Sure. But when you ask me if it's a good movie, I can't answer it just from that perspective. When you ask me if something is a good movie, I can't just say, yes, the cinematography, the editing, the acting is first rate. I can't just say that. I have to say, is the movie good in the sense that it promotes values that I endorse? Do you get what I'm saying? Even if it's well-produced... That only makes it a good movie in one sense. It will never make it a morally pure movie. And so when someone asks me, is such and such a good movie? And they're telling me it is. And it's loaded with things that, as a follower of Christ, I find repulsive. Then then it's hard for me to say, well, yeah, that's a really good movie. And so I think Christians need to look at it on that level. In terms of the influence. So remember, we're thinking about examples. Assessing entertainment. Entertainment is the worship of our world. Entertainment and sports are the worship of our world. That that big temple we call the Rogers Center where people go to worship. Like, we have to think about that stuff. We have to put the way we're influenced in our lives. Good examples must be sought. Bad ones must be uprooted. Okay, so that's quite a while back. The second tool, I said there were two, the power of a good example, and secondly, the word of God. And it's, this is where we've been landing in recent weeks. It's, it's powerful because it's breathed out by God himself. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So, of course, how could it not be profitable? It's breathed out by God. The thing is, not everyone who has a Bible experiences its transforming power. 
For that matter, not everyone who reads the Bible, we've been looking at this in Sunday mornings, like this morning, not everyone who reads the Bible experiences its transforming power. And so Paul, Paul's going to outline the working of God's word in our hearts. What, what makes it effective? What makes it productive? And there are four words that he uses, and we've been looking at them. They come from that 16th verse. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching. We looked at that. For reproof, we looked at that. Those are the first two steps. I mean, first of all, we have to be scripturally taught. We have to at least know what the Bible says. That doesn't guarantee obedience, but it's for sure I can't obey it if I have no clue what's in it. So Peter says we, we must hunger for the word like newborn babes. He doesn't mean that we're like that at the beginning of our Christian life and grow out of it. He means that we have a newborn baby's hunger for its mother's milk all through our Christian walk for the word. That, that hunger that doesn't go away. It's the first natural hunger of the child of God. I think every Christian needs to ask himself or herself, how, how, do, I, how do I approach God's word? Do I, do I come more seriously only occasionally when I'm looking for solutions to problems? If we do that, we'll only be interested in God's word when we're in a jam. There are lots of Christians like that. The world, the word will never yield its richest fruit to those Christians. There has to be ongoing, consistent, growing hunger and application of the word. Teaching. Secondly, we looked at reproof. It makes sense that that's the second step. As as more and more I, I see, I see myself in God's word, I see how he reveals his will about my life, then I, I just realize I, I don't, I'm not like that. I don't, I don't measure up. That's not a bad thing, by the way. This is not God's way of condemning me and beating me over the head. This is God's way of convicting me to bring fresh Cleansing and fresh growth and fresh restoration into my life. Reproof. Reproof feels painful. But it's a necessary pain. It's a temporary pain. It's the pain of surgery. It's the pain of healing. And, and the sin has to be removed before anything of God's positive kingdom can, can be constructed in my heart. So we've been looking at those words from that Timothy text. Paul isn't the only one to write about reproof. It's amazing when you look for it to see how much Jesus talked about it. And the process of his life and how it worked in his followers. You can look at John 15, 1 and 2. You probably know these words when you hear them. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he, he prunes it. That it may bear more fruit. So don't miss the obvious point here. Something, 
something needs to be cut out of the father's children if the process of fruit bearing is to be continuous. That's why you prune. You prune so that the fruit that's there is not going to be the only fruit there will be. There will be additional fruit, but, but, but not without pruning, not without reproof. I can't think of clearer words right from the lips of our Lord about the abounding value of reproof. Without reproof, fruit will dry up in my life. There is just no way, if Jesus is telling the truth, there is no way of maintaining fruitfulness without ongoing pruning, cutting back, reproof. Reproof is not the proof of being backslidden, Ignoring reproof is a sign of being backslidden. But receiving, heeding, humbly embracing reproof with a teachable heart, that's a sign of the Father's ongoing love and interest and investment in my walk with him. So that's a kind of a review of everything we've been looking at in this series. What happens after reproof? Point number one. The heeding of reproof must be followed by the establishing of correction. You see that 16th verse, 2 Timothy 3? All scripture is breathed up by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. The the word for correction there is a word meaning to to set together, to set straight, to, to make upright. So after the reproof has been given, the sin has been... Defined, identified, exposed. Christian is ready to start receiving God's positive correction. But each of those steps is vital. Each of them must be taken in turn. There's there's an order to those terms. Teaching, reproof, correction. You can't just start start correcting and building a, a better life. There's a reason... Baptism is meant to come at the beginning of the Christian life. It should be your first decision after conversion. And the reason is, baptism sets the pattern. Because it's not all just up, up, up. The first step in baptism, have you noticed? It's down. What what baptism is, is... It's launching the pattern of my life before Jesus that it will be ongoingly repentant. Baptism is the inaugural act of repentance for the Christian. Baptism is the first act saying every step of drawing closer to Jesus is going to involve drowning something of my personal life. And the person that thinks they're going to follow Jesus just by adding a little teaching here and a little correction there and a little addition of niceness here, he's never going to get there. So Jesus says, you go and you make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. Start baptizing them. Get them to understand that the order is this and then this. It's not just this, 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 and this. So that's the nature of of the way reproof is related to correction. There will be bruised, worn out, frustrated, tired Christians 
who don't recognize the importance of the proper order of those steps, who are constantly just trying with the will to add the qualities of Jesus to their life by addition. And the qualities of Jesus can't be added to your life by addition. The qualities of Jesus can only be added to your life by replacement. Let me tell you how I see it happening all the time. There are Christians who back away from their exposure to God's word simply because they only felt the pain of reproof without seeing the positive goal at the end of it. So in other words, they've, they've focused so much on the cost of obeying the Lord that they didn't see the fruit of obeying the Lord. They, they convinced themselves that it's, it's, it's just too hard, it's too difficult, too costly. They didn't see how much greater the end result of listening to the Spirit of the Lord would be than all of the shallow, hollow glitter of sin and the pleasure that it seemed to offer. B, there are Christians who try to implement the correction of God's word without ever forsaking and cutting out, pruning the sin that he exposed in his reproof. This is very common in North American Christianity. We're oriented by our culture to center our lives around the fulfilling of our aspirations and our expectations. We want what we want right now. We don't want to be inconvenienced. And, and here's the problem with all that, is we're trying to follow a Savior and a faith that has, at the very entry point of it, a cross. Come, come, die, and follow me. That's the order, by the way. Come, die, follow me. Let a man come, take up his cross, follow me daily. Come, die, follow me. And a lot of people try and step around that point. And of course, nothing else works if you step around that point. You can't just, you can't just come and claim blessings. You can't just come and try and be a nicer person. What would Jesus do won't save anybody. See, sometimes people will avoid God's reproof in one area of their life by overdoing spirituality in another area. I feel guilty about my secret dishonesty in some area of work, so I'll, I'll give a big bunch of money to missions. I feel guilty about not spending time with my wife, my marriage, so I'll, I'll buy her a car. I know I'm, I don't know enough about God's word to save my soul, so I'll put my kids in a Christian school. Maybe that'll keep their lives on track. Whatever form it takes, it's, it's a very common tendency to try and sort of compensate in some area for a price I'm unwilling to pay in another. It... it Long term, it can't work. It will never work. It cannot work. Do you remember the prophet Ezekiel? He described, he described the, the more popular voices among the people. 
the religious leaders among the people and the crowds like them and flock to them and God speaks through Ezekiel and he says the reason you like those prophets is because they come and they, they, they got this wall that's toppling. It's about to fall over and collapse. It's all rotten and they come with white paint. And they paint the whole thing and the sun shines on it and you think, wow, that's, that's beautiful. But, but Ezekiel says, the Lord says through Ezekiel, but they haven't, they haven't fixed anything. Peace, peace, blessing, love, joy, hug. But nothing set right at the center. Point number two. The bridge between the sting of reproof and the benefit of correction. Okay, There's a, there's a bridge that links those two. And the bridge is confession and repentance. I'll give you one, a great verse of scripture. It was written by one of the wisest men ever to live, according to the Bible. And it deals with how one makes clean entry into the correcting work of the word of God and the life of the spirit. It's in Proverbs 28, 13. And it says this, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I, I have a feeling that what's generally been modified slightly is we, we, just, we just think you just confess and you get mercy, right? He who confesses, I'm just reading now from the Bible, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So there's, there's two steps. Confession, forsaking. Those are by the way, those are the two essential biblical ingredients to repentance. Repentance is not the same as remorse. Repentance is not saying sorry about that. Repentance is different. It's, it's confessing and then forsaking. I just want to look at each of these really quick. Confessing is not the same as just admitting. Confessing is not just spilling the beans... You, you know, you go, you walk and you pay for your groceries and you've got those stupid magazines sitting there and true confession. And people are almost proud. They write about all their relationships and all their affairs and just, I'm confessing. That's just admitting. Okay? That's all that is. Reporting. Confession is not just spilling the beans. We're buried with those kinds of confessions. There can almost be a kind of pride in those confessions. Or confession can be viewed from an almost strictly psychological standpoint. So the value of confession is, is some kind of a, an emotional catharsis, a release. Getting out from under some kind of burden. I've been hiding this, I'm coming out. None of those has anything to do with what the Bible means when it talks about confession. Biblical confession of sin is this. It is, it is adopting and feeling God's viewpoint on my sin. Confession is seeing my sin not merely as human weakness or pain, but as transgression against God. 
Psalm 51.4, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Evil, the important words are, in your sight. What, what made David's sin evil wasn't that he came to feel very badly about it. What made David's sin evil was he started to see it in God's sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So here's the test of proper confession. If I come to God with my confession and I am preoccupied with anything else when I confess my sin to God, like the pain I'm going through, the damage I've done to my reputation, the consequences of being caught in sin. All of those things might be real. But if those are the things on my mind, then I'm not properly aligned with God's word in my understanding of confession. There's a different thought category that needs to be created in my head. I confess my sin not because it hurt me. I confess my sin because I've wronged God. So sin is ugly not primarily because it messed me up. It surely did that. But sin is wrong because it grieved the spirit of God. I've done what is evil, David says, in your sight. And the ultimate reason for hating sin is not some temporary pain it brings my life. But the eternal separation it brings from God. That's the proper mindset for for confession. I said there were these two steps that made a bridge between reproof and correction. And the bridge is confession and forsaking. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. He who confesses, that's what we talked about, and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Sometimes, if someone from the outside, I mean, someone came here who knew nothing of religion, someone landed from a different planet and just walked in and attended various churches and listened to what was said and watched what we were doing and heard evangelical Christians like us, they may, they may well get the impression as they heard us talk that all God wants to do with sin is forgive it. And that's not all God wants to do with sin. He wants to forgive it, and he wants to remove it. He wants to replace it with the righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit. One other thing on forsaking sin. I think sometimes in, in, in promoting something really good that we can promote it in such a way that we distort the actual truth a little bit. It's, I think it's a huge mistake to think that God will forsake your sin for you. I don't mean that he won't help. God will help you. The Holy Spirit will work along 
side your will as you decide to turn from wickedness. You certainly can't do it on your own. But the Holy Spirit does not accomplish that whole process for you. It was a great emphasis in a lot of Pentecostal churches. I grew up in this, and it was a good emphasis. A great emphasis of early Pentecostal practice was that central to everything else was the experience of God in the heart in, in a living way. And people came to church altars in great numbers, and people came to prayer meetings. And that was a good thing because it, it, they knew they couldn't live the Christian life on their own willpower. In those days, most of those people were relatively poor. And they knew their only hope was to lift their eyes to the Lord and to call upon his name. But having said that, one of the weaknesses of that old emphasis was the idea of receiving victory over sin at the altar. Of course, God did touch lives at those altars. He touched my life. I spent, I spent every Sunday night of my life uh, until I was married and moved away and pastoring on my own. But all through my, my preschool, school, teen, college years, I spent every Sunday night of my life, like everybody else in the church, when the service was over, Everybody went downstairs. Churches used to have basements. And when the service was over, somebody would lead in a hymn, piano that wasn't very well tuned, and someone who couldn't play the organ really well. And as they were singing the hymn, everybody just walked down the stairs, went down into the basement, and everybody just took a green prayer mat that sat on a brown stacking chair, and you put the mat on the hard, cold tile floor, and you knelt down, and before anybody went home Sunday night, you just prayed for a little while. Anybody remember those days? I embrace that. I embrace that. God touched lives. God filled people with his spirit. God did search our hearts. Having said that, you really don't get victory over sin at an altar. I don't care what you experience. You, 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 you experience victory over a particular sin when you forsake that sin at a specific time of temptation and confrontation with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You may resolve to forsake sin at the altar, and that's wonderful, but you actually forsake that sin in everyday life when you're tempted to commit it. You renounce it. So confessing and forsaking sin form the bridge. It's a long way home, I know, but we're almost done. That's the bridge between re reproof and correction. So point number three. When you've heard the Lord's reproof, confessed your sin and forsaken, you're still not done. That's the focal point that I want to wrap up with tonight. Jesus was very concerned. Jesus was very concerned about confessing sin, forsaking sin, being forgiven, 
He is the giver of grace and mercy. It comes through his shed blood. But he was very concerned about the reoccurrence of sin in our lives after we have determined to follow him in purity. He dealt with that subject very specifically. In one text, this is the one we'll look at, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Imagine the nerve of Jesus. Hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So these words, they come from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has spent, will spend, considerable time in the Sermon on the Mount dealing with the kinds of sins people commit. Hatred, murder, lust, adultery, unforgiveness, quite a list. And Jesus offers forgiveness. Free, unearned, gracious pardon for guilty people. When they could do nothing to earn their status before a holy God... Jesus comes with wonderful, cleansing mercy. But, according to Jesus, it would be a terrible mistake to think that divine forgiveness somehow brought immunity to future failure in those very same sins. And and let me tell you, there is just nothing more inwardly defeating and numbing than falling again into sins that you've already confessed and forsaken before. Nothing makes you feel like a loser like that. And that's not what Jesus plans for his followers. And so, he deals so pointedly not only with forgiveness of sin, but prevention of sin. I want to look at this I said quickly about 10 minutes ago, didn't I? Here is what Jesus says about establishing permanent patterns of correction. Permanent patterns of correction. PPC. In your walk with him. First, Jesus assumes these people know where and how they are falling into sin. They don't just let life happen around them. They analyze their failings. They pray about them. Is the problem the eye? Is it what you're seeing? What do the internet sites look? If someone could get to all the history on your websites. Is the problem with the hand? The things you sign, checks, documents. These these people know the root, the source of the terrible traps they fall into. They they know how this downward spiral into sin takes place. We're all sinners saved by grace. We all know we're weak enough. That general knowledge will never keep you out of sin. This, well, Pastor Don, none of us is perfect. That's useless information. We all know that. That's like saying water is wet. General knowledge isn't enough. What are the entry points of sin? 
How do you get into those situations? What are the places? Who are you with? When did it happen last? How about the time before that? How do you get into those situations? Are some seasons worse than others for moral purity? If so, do you know why? What influences you? He assumes, if your right eye causes you to sin, why does he say two body parts? Well, because it's not always the same way that we get trapped into sin. If it's the eye, pluck it out. If it's the hand, cut it off. Secondly, Jesus assumes these people will do absolutely anything to avoid these sins in the future. Everybody says, oh, Pastor Don, do you really think Jesus meant you're supposed to get a meat cleaver and, you know, lop off your hand? Well, I think we all know that 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 by itself doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't change the heart. I mean, there have been monks and all sorts of people who tried all sorts of things to the body. That won't work. But my response is, Surely Jesus meant that drastic action is going to be required to forsake sin. I mean, he wasn't painting as light and breezy a picture as he could. When he said, if your right hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut it off than to lose out eternally. There are Christians who just sort of use grace... Recklessly jump out of the airplane and grace is the parachute and it'll open up when they need it. And Jesus will have none of it. He just assumes that his disciples will suffer anything rather than continue in sin. And, and so he paints this picture. It's pretty graphic and I think it's meant to be. C. In maintaining moral purity, a quick, decisive action is nine-tenths of the victory. There's just, there is nowhere where Jesus counsels a gradual, you know, I'll pray about whether I should, you know, I've been living with this woman for X number of years, and I know you say we're not married, but you know what, I'm going to seek God's will on it. The quicker you make the decision to forsake sin, the decisive break, the more likely your success, the greater the chances. Find the source, find the root. Is it a relationship with another person? Is it a place, a location where you can indulge in secret sin? Is it some form of entertainment? Don't even ask Jesus for help until you're willing to root that out of your life. Everybody plans to be a nicer person. Everybody loves spiritual growth in some vague sense. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. All I ask to be like him. Well, so does everybody else that goes to church. And Jesus would come and just tap Don Horbin on the shoulder and say, so do, do you want to follow me in purity more than you want your right hand? Do you want to follow me in purity? This one's easier for me. More than you want your right eye? Yeah, I don't need it. He doesn't assume that this will be an easy victory. 
Nothing in those words in Matthew 5 looks easy. This kind of purity costs. It's worth it. But this kind of purity costs. It always costs. Nobody fails because there isn't provision. People fail because they don't want purity as much as they think they want purity. Lastly, D, in cutting off the hand, you're eliminating the prospect of future sin. Band-aids come off. Hands don't grow back. And so Jesus is saying, find, find the thing that's tripping you up. And get and stay as far away from that as possible. And however much you think that's going to hurt, that sin will not satisfy, secure, and engage your life anywhere near to my, my purpose and will and the fruit of the Spirit, and the joy of following me, and the productivity of a healthy Christian life, you cannot imagine how much more satisfying that's going to be because you're all blind and gummed up in this. Cut that off. That's the bridge. That's the bridge between reproof. That's the awareness. Oh, this is wrong. The bridge between that and correction. Confession, forsaking sin... Eliminating the possibility of future sin to the best of your ability. Let's pray.